Did you know that the Bible, this book right here, is a Jewish book? Are you aware of that? Most of the people we read about in the Bible were Jewish, were Jews, right? Jesus was a Jew. He went to the synagogue. He kept the Sabbath. He attended the feasts. He was a Jew. My grandfather was an Orthodox Jew from Lithuania. He lived through both world wars. During World War I, he and his family were forced to go to Russia. And after some years in Russia, they returned to Lithuania, but soon there was unrest again. And my grandfather relocated his entire family to Israel, where he hoped they would be safe. But making a living in Israel wasn't as easy as he had planned, and they were not doing very well there. So he left the family in Israel, and he traveled to South Africa, where he was planning to make a living and send money back to them. He was still a young man at this point. He was supporting all of his brothers and sisters and aunts and uncles and his dad. And while in South Africa, he got an apprenticeship as a bricklayer. So he was working hard. He was making some friends. But most of his coworkers were very mean to him. And they frequently made slurs towards him and remarks justifying the Nazis' actions. By now, World War II was taking place. However, one of his coworkers, who we will call Jack, was very, very kind to him. Just one. All the rest were mean, and Jack was kind. He was proud to identify with the Jews, even though he wasn't Jewish. Now, Jack referred to himself as a spiritual Jew. And he was convinced that there was no difference between what he believed and the fundamental um, basic parts of Judaism. The other co-workers worked on Sabbath. My grandfather would go to the synagogue and then go to work on Sabbath. But this man, Jack, he wouldn't go to work on Sabbath. And my grandpa marveled. He said, you know, Jack, you're a better Jew than I am. <laughs> Can you guess what Jack was? He was a Seventh-day Adventist. You're right. And my grandfather had never met a Christian like him. Most Christians didn't like the Jews. And this man called himself a Jew, a spiritual Jew. He was just absolutely amazed especially with what was going on in the world right then, that this man would be kind to him and take an interest in him. So they became friends. They started meeting together. They started discussing spiritual things. They started discussing the Bible. And my grandfather, he had studied mostly the teachings of the rabbis all of his life. And now he began to take a look deeper into Scripture. Let me ask you a question. Do you know the main difference between Seventh-day Adventism and Judaism? 
Jesus, you're correct. What specifically about Jesus is different? Mm -hmm. We believe he was the Messiah, and the Jews believe he was not. And do you know why? They did crucify him, but there was a reason why, why they did that, why they didn't accept him as the Messiah when he was on the earth. That's right. They didn't believe he was the Son of God. They didn't believe that Jesus was divine because, um, we'll, we'll get to more of that later, but because of a foundation of Judaism is that God is one and only one. So Jesus couldn't be the Messiah because he was separate from the Father, and that can't be the case. Christians also believe there is one God, but that he is made of three units, three units so unified in one accord that they are one and are referred to in scripture many times as one. Names carry meaning, don't they? Do you know what your name means? If you don't, Google will give you the answer. <laughs> but. My name, Melissa, means honeybee in Greek, and my parents had that in mind when they named me. Names carry meaning, and God's name also carries meaning. Names in the Bible tell us much about the character of the individual that is named. So I want you to turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1. Do I have a volunteer to read that for me? Yes, go for it. Genesis 1 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Excellent. Now, this word for God, that is God's name, right? And in Hebrew, the word for God there is Elohim which is a plural noun, God plural. It's like saying gods in a, in a sort of sense. It's a plural noun. Now, that's an interesting way to introduce oneself, don't you think? This is the beginning of the Bible, and he's saying, I am gods, plural. I created the heavens and the earth. We created that. If I met you for the first time and I said, hi, my name is Melissa's, what would you think? There's only one Melissa. What are you talking about? You might think my grammar was incorrect or that I was imagining that there was more than one of me. You might have some funny thoughts about me, but you wouldn't think my introduction was an accurate description of myself, would you? No. But God makes this claim here that he is a plural God. His name is in the plural form. Also, in Genesis 1.26, we see a similar theme. Does someone want to read Genesis 1, verse 26? Maddie. And God said, let us make man in our image, after our own likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, 
be interesting. Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Once again, we see those plural words. He's not saying, I'm going to do this. Let us. Now, if I was speaking um, like this, let us in our image, who would I be talking to? Somebody over there or to you guys? To you. If I say us, I'm, refer I'm, I'm talking to someone that's doing it with me, right? So who is God speaking to here? The Trinity. He's, he's speaking that God is speaking to himself, in a sense, because there's more than one. God is speaking to God. Now, there are several other places in Scripture where God refers to himself with these terms, us and our, when he's talking about the Tower of Babel, he says, let us go down. Um, so there are other places where God refers to this, and it's becoming apparent that maybe God wants us to understand that his divine reality, apart from and before creation, involves a plurality of personhood. There are three people working here in the work of creation, each with a different role, but working together, completely unified with the same purpose, same heart, and same character. You might say, I thought God is one. I, I thought he, it says in Deuteronomy. Let's turn there. Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 4. Can I have a volunteer to read Deuteronomy 6, 4? Excellent. Thank you. This is the verse that is the foundation of um, Judaism. They call it the Shema, and they, they have a song for it, too. It goes like this. Shema Israel, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. Now, my grandpa, of course, believed in this verse, believed in the inspiration of scripture, and he says to his friend Jack, but it says right here in Deuteronomy, the Lord is one. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. This is the verse that Jews have quoted for centuries, saying Jesus isn't the Messiah. God is one, just one. But... Something that Jack couldn't do, that my grandpa could do, was read the Bible in Hebrew. My grandpa knew Hebrew, and he could read the Bible in its original language. And so one day he was reading, studying the Bible, and he said, wait a second, the word for one here, the Lord our God is one, is the word echad, the word that I sang at the end of the song. That word is found in some other places, too. In Genesis 1.5, it says, there was an evening and there was a morning. One day, that word for one is echad, 
one day. An evening and a morning make one day. If you look in Genesis 2, verse 24, it says, you know, a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Echad. And my grandpa thought, this is fascinating, because here we see two separate and distinct persons, a man and a wife, and they form a unit. They work together. They are one in nature, purpose, and cooperation. They work together as a pair in maintaining their family life. But they're, a not, they're not a unit to the extent that they are merged into one single human being and personality, right? They're two, two distinct people. But the Bible refers to them as one, echad, the same way that it refers to God as one. As my grandfather studied these passages, he could not fail to observe that in each case, the Hebrew word echad was used to designate more than one single thing. The two parts of the day were one. The man and wife were one. Could it be that echad could also denote a composite unity and not just merely one thing as an absolute unity? Could it be that when the Bible says God is one, that it means the composite unity? The three distinct persons could actually be unified in heart, mission, and character. My grandfather was intrigued. And he studied deeper, and he prayed harder because this was going against everything that he had ever known. But then he came across um, Genesis 22. Let's turn there. Genesis chapter 22, verse 2. Genesis 22 and verse 2. Then he said, Take now your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, when it says your only son here, it uses a different word for only or for one, your only one son. The word there is yahid. And that word in Hebrew means it's stressing individuality. There's just one. And there was only one son of promise to Abraham. That was Isaac. So that makes sense that the Bible would use a different Hebrew word there. And then my grandfather got to thinking, now, if, if there's a whole other word for that meaning, why didn't Moses use that in Deuteronomy? Moses must have used ehad, the composite oneness, to, for a purpose. He used that word instead. Maybe God is plural. Now, the plurality of God makes even more sense when we learn about God's character in other parts of the Bible. So let's turn back to the New Testament, to the book of 1 John. 1 Just a couple pages before Revelation. 1 John chapter 4. Can I get a volunteer to read 1 John 4 and verse 16?
Amen. God is love. What do we know about love? What is love? Putting someone first. Excellent. We know from 1 Corinthians 13 that love is not self-seeking. That love, true love, must be other-centered. And in order for love to exist, there must be more than one person, right? So there has to be two people. Well, you've heard the saying, two's a company, three's a crowd. Have you heard that before? Now, we think this is true because we subconsciously know that we're naturally self-centered. So if we're friends with someone and then a third person enters the mix, we feel threatened, right? This has happened to me before um, in high school. Yet, a third person in a relationship is what is best for that relationship. Because if that third person is accepted, if that third person is allowed into that circle, self-centeredness will have to give way to a more selfless quality of love. So now you not only have to receive the love of your first friend, you also have to accept that your first friend has another friend. And you have to accept the divided interest that is not exclusively focused on you. For this reason, three is the minimum numeric value of love, the minimum number for true love to exist. So what's the minimum number? Three. Excellent. And here's why. You might be wondering, why can't it be less than that? Well, because when there's only one person, Love cannot occur. And when there are two, each is the sole recipient of the other's attention. And that gives room for self-centeredness to grow. But the moment there are three, the moment there are three, each recipient must humbly defer attention to the third party. And each one must occupy the position of the third person to the other two. So pure selflessness can now occur, which couldn't happen when there was just two. But once you have three, pure selflessness can occur, and one must love and be loved with both an, both an exclusive and a divided interest. So I'm going to make a bold statement now, and that is that if the father the Son, and the Holy Spirit were not eternally coexistent, it could not be said with any coherence that God is love. I'm going to say that again. If the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit were not eternally coexistent, it could not be said with any coherence that God is love. Interestingly enough, there is lots about this in the Bible. Let's turn to the Gospel of John. John chapter 13. We 
We've been talking about this selfless quality that must be there for love to exist. And this selfless community and relationship is exhibited between the different members of the triune Godhead. Each one passes the praise and the honor to the other members. So look for that as we read these next few verses here. The first verse we're going to read is John 13 and verse 31. Would someone like to read that? John 13, 31. Okay, thank you. Wow. So when Jesus was glorified, God was glorified in him. You see, he's passing back the glory, and the glory is um, being passed on. The praise and honor are always passing around the different members. Let's turn over to John 15. John chapter 15 and verse 26. Would someone like to read that? Yes, Jennifer. beautiful. We see this picture of the Holy Spirit coming from the Father and testifying of who? Jesus. Jesus. Wow. John chapter 16, just the next chapter, and verses 13 through 15. John 16, verses 13 through 15. Would someone like to read that one? Wow, that is so beautiful. The intermingling of responsibility and praise, they're always passing it on. The spirit doesn't speak on his own authority, but just tells what he hears. And he will glorify Jesus and take care of what belongs to Jesus, which, by the way, came from the Father. Isn't that neat? So what we're beginning to comprehend here is that God is essentially a relational being of other-centered love. God is a social unit, and he exists in this self-giving friendship of three who are one. Isn't he beautiful? Each of these three divine members of, of the Trinity are referred to in scripture as God. Let's look up a couple verses to check this out further. Isaiah chapter 64. Isaiah chapter 64 and verse 8. Someone like to read that for us. 
Isaiah 64, 8. Beautiful. So the Lord, the Father is referred to as the Lord, and he is the divine creator. Let's turn to Titus in the New Testament. Right after Timothy. Titus chapter 2 and verse 13. Titus 2, 13. Looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So what does it call Jesus Christ? Our God and Savior. He is a divine being. Let's turn over to Acts. One more. Can you guess what this one might be about? The Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 5, verses 1 through 4. Do I have a volunteer to read Acts chapter 5, verses 1 through 4? Sure. <laughs> Thank you very much. So in verse 3, who does it say Ananias lied to? The Holy Spirit. And what does it say in verse 4? Who did he lie to? God. So we see that God is also the Holy Spirit. Let's look at a verse in... 2 Corinthians, if you want to turn there, that actually mentions all three. 2 Corinthians chapter 13. And verse 14, the very last verse of this book. Would someone like to read 2 Corinthians 13, verse 14? Yes. Beautiful. Thank you. 
So we see all three working together here. The Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the communion of the Holy Spirit. And just as in the work of creation, where we saw all three members of the Godhead at work, we see each of the three persons of the Godhead here working together, completely unified, in the work of salvation. Each has a specific and individual role, but each works together with the others in perfect and selfless love and ministry. Now, if you think in the New Testament, where, where was the greatest exhibition of God's love? What do you think of? The cross. Excellent. Do you think that all three members of the Godhead were there too? Well, we know Jesus was there. He was the one that was crucified, so we know that part. But where were the other two? Let's look at Matthew, chapter 26. Matthew 26 and verse 53. Would someone like to read that for us? Matthew 26, 53. It's okay if you've read before, you can read again. <laughs> yes, Dr. Trout. Matthew twenty six fifty three. How close was the father? Just a prayer away. Very, very close. And Jesus knew that. He knew that at any moment he could pray to the father and his prayer would be answered like that. With legions and legions of angels. Twelve legions. So the father was there. He was present. Suffering with his son. Right through the crucifixion. Let's turn over to Matthew 27. Matthew 27 and verse 19. Thank you. So this is Pilate's wife, and she had had a dream about Jesus. Now, we know from other places in Scripture who sends dreams. Who is that? The Holy Spirit. Excellent. We know that from Joel 2.28, if you're taking notes, that the Holy Spirit is the one that causes visions, that sends dreams. And so the Holy Spirit was working there, talking to Pilate's wife. Let's turn over to Matthew 27 and verse 54. Matthew 27, verse 54.
Wow. So the Holy Spirit was also present right there at the cross, working on the centurion's heart, causing him to believe. The Spirit draws us also to look upon Christ as our sacrifice and to declare truly this was the Son of God. I want to um, look back briefly at Genesis 1 again, where we started out. Genesis 1, 1, where it says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So we see God there, Elohim, the plural form. And the word for created is bara, which the word for son comes from that word. I don't know if you've ever heard in Jewish culture of bar mitzvahs. That's when the son um, turns 12, I believe, and they have a special celebration for him. Bar means son. God created bara through the son. So here we see the father and the son at creation. And then the, um, we see in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And the word created is bara, which um, this, the word for son comes from that. Bar is son in Hebrew. So God created through the son. And we see this later in, um, in John. It says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, right? And all things were made through him. So without him, nothing was made that was made. So Jesus is here at the beginning of creation, which we already had an idea that he was because the Word for God is plural. And he says, let us make man in our image, but he created with the same word that son comes from. He created through the son. And then we think, you know, if God the Father and God the Son are both present, where's the spirit? Would someone like to read that last part of verse 2, Genesis 1, verse 2? Wow. Wow. There it is. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit, right at the beginning, present throughout the entire creation process. In Ecclesiastes chapter 12, it says, remember now your creator in the days of your youth, right? The word there for creator is plural also. In the Hebrew, it's remember now thy creators. Isn't that interesting? There were more than one. There was more than one person involved with creation because God is plural. And I am here today because my grandfather searched the scriptures until he found God in three persons. Blessed Trinity. He fell in love with the Father. He developed a deep relationship with the Son, Jesus Christ. And he allowed the Holy Spirit into his life. He ended up coming here to the United States and um, meeting my grandmother 
And he spent his entire life with this one goal in mind, to tell the Jews this good news. He wrote this book right here, The Quest of a Jew. Um, some of you may have even heard of him. Samuel Jacobson was my grandfather. And he, if you talked with him, you might be talking to him three minutes or less, and he would be talking about the Jewish work. His passion, his heart cry was for his people, was for the Jews to learn about the Messiah and to come to believe that he was the Son of God. He wanted them to know about this God of love that wants to spend eternity with us. Let's turn to our last text in John, the Gospel of John, verse, um, chapter 17. John 17, and starting in verse 20. John 17, starting in verse 20. I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Do you believe in him through his word? Then he was praying for you here. Jesus prayed for you, and Jesus prayed for me. I do not pray for these alone, his disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through your word, that they may all be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. And the glory which you gave me, I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. And down to verse 26. And I have declared to them your name, and I will declare it, that the love with which you loved me may be in them and I in them. Isn't that beautiful? Jesus came to declare God's name. And as we learned at the beginning, names mean things. Names are important. What was the name that he gave himself in the beginning of Genesis? Elohim. His name includes all three. His name includes the beautiful truth that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit want you and I to experience this oneness. They have been existing for all eternity in perfect, other-centered love. And they are inviting us to join in that. That is amazing. I mean, do you realize what kind of an offer that is? If somebody, you see someone that has a wonderful marriage over here, and you think, you know, that's really amazing. I wish that I, I could encounter that too. Well, you can't because that's exclusive between them, right? But God is saying, you can come in. You can come into our inner circle and experience our love. It's not an exclusive thing. 
for them. They are giving and giving and giving in perfect other-centered love. They want you and I to experience this oneness, this unity, this selfless love that they experience among themselves. This three-in-one relational God invites us today to experience this close relationship with him, partaking of his love and reflecting it to everyone around us. If this is your desire to join with the triune God to partake and reflect his love, would you stand with me? Let's pray together. Dear Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we have learned more about you today, more about your love for each other and for us. And it astounds us that you would invite us to partake of this love, to partake of your unity and oneness, that you would want to share this with us, weak and sinful and tiny as we are, that you love us, you created us, you planned amazing things for our lives, um, and you want to spend all eternity with us. And we have stood together to tell you that we want that too, and that we would like to join you, to partake of your love, and to pass it on and reflect that to others. So we ask for your special power in our lives to, to be present and to make this happen. Send your Holy Spirit to live in us that we may experience the indwelling of your love. And we praise you with all of our hearts because you are worthy to be praised. Amen.